Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for September 2009. I'm Eric Martins, Managing Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by Assistant Managing Editor Enerban Mahapatra. Hi, Enerban. Hi, Eric. Hello, everyone. This month, we highlight a number of research papers and reviews. Today, we'll be talking to Kate Carroll and Kelly Akama, authors of recently published papers. Other recently published papers include the description of lipid analogs that bind to a cytoskeletal protein from Martha Oakley's lab, a study of the effects of altering the arrangement of phosphorylation motifs on kinase signaling from Todd Miller's group, and a review on the therapeutic use of glycoproteins in medicine from Peter Seberger's lab. We also showcase the synthesis and functional analysis of peptidomimetics that modulate the function of factors that regulate the peripheral and central nervous system from the labs of Kevin Burgess and Yuri Saragovi. Now we'd like to highlight some interesting content that you'll find only on our website. In Ask the Expert, we give you the opportunity to pose questions directly to top scientists in the field. Our current expert is Dr. Sheng Ding, Associate Professor at the Scripps Research Institute. He will be fielding our questions about the use of chemical and functional genomic tools to study stem cell biology and regeneration. Submit your questions for him today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. To learn more about the authors of the papers in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month we meet eight young scientists, Kelly Akuma, Gonzalo Bernardez, Bastian Castagner, Jianjun Chen, Kamalpreet Chohan, Parag Patwardhan, Sarah M. Ricker, and Nicole K. Stewart. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to define chem-bio glossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is glycoarray. Glycoarrays contain glycans attached to a surface in a spatially defined and miniaturized fashion. We are joined today by Kate Carroll at the University of Michigan. Hi, Kate. Hi. The paper from your group in ACS Chemical Biology focuses on mining the thiol proteome for sulfenic acid modifications. What exactly is the thiol proteome? And you also refer to the sulfonome in your paper. Could you explain what that is as well? That's a really good question. Let's start with the thiol proteome. So, uh, roughly speaking, the thiol is a functional group. It's containing a sulfur and a hydrogen atom. That's what distinguishes the amino acid cysteine. So through genetics, we can already know all the proteins that contain a cysteine, and so we refer to the thiol proteome as proteins that contain cysteines. Now in the redox biology community, or the oxidation biology community, the thiol proteome is also taken to mean those proteins that contain redox or reactive cysteine amino acid residues. Now the sulfonome then is a subset of proteins that contain cysteine residues, so that is the subset of proteins within the thiol proteome itself that have cysteine residues, which are reactive with hydrogen peroxide to form the sulfenic acid, or SOH intermediate. So what is the chemistry behind the sulfenic acid detection in the paper? The chemistry behind sulfenic acid detection is really twofold. First, the sulfenic acid itself is pretty unique within the cellular environment. And what I mean by that is the sulfur atom is normally very nucleophilic. Really, nature's role for sulfur is it's uh, nature's nucleophile, if you will. But in the context of the sulfenic acid, the sulfur atom becomes much, much more electrophilic. And it's this property of the sulfur atom that we exploit. And so what we do is we use a nucleophilic reagent, which is based on a chemical scaffold. It's a 1,3-cyclohexanedione, or commercially known as thymidone, for example, that's a nucleophilic reagent, and we use that nucleophilic reagent to 
attack the electrophilic sulfur atom to form a covalent bond, a thioether bond between the protein sulfenic acid and the 1,3-cyclohexadione derivative. Now, the nucleophilic reagent that I just referred to is functionalized with an azide chemical group. This is a, a chemical handle that allows us in a secondary reaction step to detect which proteins have been modified. And in the particular paper, the particular manuscript that's been published, we've utilized or exploited the Staudinger ligation, that is, triphenylphosphine-based reagents. In this case, it's been conjugated to a biotin handle, and that allows us to conjugate biotin directly to the azide chemical handle on the reagent that we call DAS2. Of course, you could also use quick chemistry to incorporate biotin or fluorophores and react those with the azide on the DAS2 reagent. So how common is the sulfenic acid modification in cells? Well, I'm afraid I can't give you a strict answer to that question as of yet, but what the manuscript really does reveal is that the modification is far more widespread than was previously thought. So we identified almost 200 proteins in HeLa cells, human tumor cells, which are under conditions of oxidative stress that contain the sulfenic acid modification. We believe that in other cell lines that there'll be far more proteins that will be modified. And of course, when cells are stimulated, for example, using hormones, that may also trigger the increase in sulfenic acid modification of proteins. So Again, I can't give you a strict answer, but the manuscript definitely reveals that it's far more common than we previously thought. So finally, a broader question. I'm curious, how did you get interested in sulfur metabolism? As a postdoc in Carolyn Bertozzi's lab, I worked on several enzymes that are involved in cysteine biosynthesis, particularly enzymes known as APS and PAPS reductase. And without going into all the gory chemical detail or enzyme mechanism, suffice it to say that all of the chemistry that's transacted really in this metabolic pathway is all conducted vis-a-vis sulfur or cysteine chemistry. And so there are various intermediates and nucleophilic attack steps and post-translational modifications that occur within this pathway, and they're all very sulfur-centric, if you will, or sulfur-based. And so it was through studying the cysteine biosynthetic pathway and the enzymes that transact the chemistry there that I realized really the full scope and reactivity and the potential for chemistry and novel biochemistry utilizing sulfur and amino acid cysteine, um, both, you know, obviously as a, as a nucleophile for catalysis, but also clearly as a regulatory site for post-translational modifications, not just oxidation, of course, but, but many others. And so it was that original work that piqued my interest in sulfur metabolism and and post-translational modifications. Well, it's certainly an interesting area, and good luck with your future work. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much. Our final guest is Kelly Okuma at the University of Northern British Columbia. Hi, Kelly. Hello. The work that you're a lead author on in a recent paper of ACS Chemical Biology is on small molecule inhibitors of splicing. How did you get interested in this project? Well, two of the PIs on this project were planning to co-supervise a student who was going to be a biochemistry student, but she had been in an organic undergrad degree. And so they were trying to come up with some projects that could bridge the two. Um, She had more of a synthetic background, and, of course, Stephen Rader had more of a splicing background. So they thought of this idea of testing small molecules to see if they inhibit splicing 
mainly because we were looking for tools that could help us to understand splicing better. So how did you find and test these small molecules? After they decided that they wanted to test small molecules, they started talking to some of the other organic chemists here on our campus at UNBC, and they talked to Guy Plourd, and it turned out that he had a bunch of compounds already kind of in a, a stash that he hadn't really tested for very many biological activities yet. He was hoping that they could be antibiotics, but we thought, well, maybe they'll be splicing inhibitors too. These compounds are precursors to manumycin, and they look kind of like aminoglycosides. And we had already known from some previous work from other labs that aminoglycosides do inhibit human splicing. And so we thought maybe they would inhibit yeast splicing and these compounds that you had might inhibit splicing as well. So what other kinds of questions could be answered with these small molecules? Yeah, that's a good question. So we were really hoping that we could find tools that would help us to probe the splicing cycle in a little bit more detail we were hoping to find compounds that maybe blocked splicing assembly, so spliceosomal assembly, the proteins adding on to transcripts. And we were surprised to find that these compounds do, in fact, block spliceosomal assembly, and they, in fact, block at different stages of assembly. And so I guess our hope is that we'll be able to use these compounds, block the splicing cycle, and then look at the splicing cycle and see what it is that has been blocked, what different factors have added on to the transcript and what is still left to come. We're especially interested in one set of the compounds that seem to block splicing right at the final stage where the spliceosome is assembled, but the chemical reaction has not started taking place yet. So we're hoping that that will give us some clues about what the signals are that send spliceosome into that chemical splicing stage. That sounds really interesting. Good luck with your future experiments. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Bye. That's it for this month's show. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.